Good afternoon. I'm Koyo Kuo. I'm the curator of forum and the artistic director of 154. And uh, it's a real pleasure to come back to Somerset House over the past four years. And uh, I'm particularly happy to be back down here at the auditorium because uh, I have developed a joke that didn't work last year because we were upstairs at the same level as the dealers <laughs> and the galleries. So now we can come back down here to do our mind business, as I like to say, while they are doing their money business <laughs> upstairs, which is uh, not necessarily incompatible. Uh, I really want to, uh, to thank Turia Elglawi, who had this uh, amazing idea in 2012 to involve me in an art fair and I remember that when she came to see me to ask me to be involved I told her that I'm not interested in market I don't know how it works and I don't even want to know how it works but uh, she was so uh, convincing and enthusiastic that I gave her one condition for my involvement was that we have this space of discussion and and debate so she said, yes, yes, you can do whatever you want. And I think she didn't really know what she was engaging with. So but by now she has understood that forum is a, a really a space for us to uh, discuss what the art that we are seeing, the art that we are producing and promoting is uh, all about and give uh, a kind of, uh, you know, a privileged moment to uh, engage with the artists, with the curators, with the writers, with the, with the producers, and so on. And, um, and, but first of all, and I'm really bad at it, and I always need Turia to help me, who do we have to thank this year? Please thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so thank you to Art Council England, who is supporting us for the forum and for Christie's Education and for this year's uh, corporate uh, sponsor. And Art Review, who is, of course, our, our media partner. But I would like to thank very particularly, you can imagine that a program like this takes, I mean, it takes a full year to, to come together uh, it takes a long time of conversations and, uh, and discussion and <coughs> negotiation with uh, everybody involved. And I could never do this work without the precious support of uh, my dear curatorial assistant, who is extremely discreet, but whom I'm calling up here now. Come over here. <laughs> yeah. So that everybody knows who does the legwork. Come, come, come. <laughs> Gabriela Beckhurst. Everybody who's involved in forum has received at least tons of emails from Gabriela. This is Gabriela with whom I work. She was uh, really the, the other leg and mind of, uh, of forum. And uh, it is with her that uh, I have the pleasure to do this. Thank you very much. <laughs> you can go. <laughs> Forum 
me that it's sixth edition, the fourth edition in New York, and we've done two editions, uh, no, the fourth edition in London, and we've done two editions in, uh, in New York. And uh, this year, we, are, we want to explore the relationship, the history, the futures maybe of the relationship between art and design. And we want to explore the interstices, uh, the interstice, that kind of the, the friction between contemporary art, photography, fashion, object and furniture design, architecture and urbanism, variety of talks and presentations. The program builds on the budding tradition of exhibition that serve to demonstrate the influence and confluence of African perspective in contemporary art and design with that of the diverse aesthetics and material practices around the world. Artists, architects, makers and designers continue to inform and shape global discussions in art making, design and infrastructure as exhibitions such as the Global Africa Project, which was at the Museum of Arts and Design in New York in 2010, 2011. Maybe some of you have seen it. And the very beautiful uh, current exhibition of Duro uh, Olowu, uh, Making Africa, uh, no, I'm confusing, no. The uh, Making Africa exhibition, a continent of contemporary design at Vitra Museum that is touring also internationally through uh, a whole set of institutions. I'm not quite sure if it's coming to England, but uh, it was generated in, uh, in, uh, in Germany at Vitra, and it went to Bilbao, and it's going to Australia, and it's going to the US, it's going to uh, a whole slew of uh, places internationally. And of course, the exhibition Making on Making, an exhibition curated by Duro Lowu at Candem Art Center, I think it's still running, right? No, it just finished? no, it's just finished. And uh, of course, Made You Look, which will bring us our keynote speaker later, Dandyism and Black Masculinity at the Photographer's Gallery. Encapsulated within the notion of making, it is the potential these practices evoke. So crucially, to make is also to unmake, to undo, to reconfigure, to reimagine, to propose an alternative. These factors significantly in an African post-colonial perspective, which is kind of the center of my practice, wherein challenging the paradigms of creative disciplines dovetails with a critical examination of legacy and identity. Working within a, across and across multiple artistic disciplines prompts new discussions about how material, subject, object, and form are represented. Experimentation and play, as well as subversion, are crucial to exploring cultural and historical platitudes about Africa. More than ever, the margins between art and design are being undone, unmade, reworked and reimagined. These fields, for want of a better world, if you want, distill contemporary experience while aim at futurity and transformation. The propellers forward by offering a way of dreaming 
advancement and creation. What do the blurring of these fields of art and design tell us, ultimately? If the softening of these borderlines can be reduced, can be deduced as such, it would be to understand that contemporary artists, makers, designers, craftspeople, because that's where art began, people tend to forget that. Architects and educators are at the root of this activity. The frontiers between function and form, experience and pedagogy, are being imploded from within. So we will place focus on practitioners that traverse and push the boundaries of these fields as independent categories, while the conversation will aim at a wider appraisal of an interdisciplinary material practice. In light of the proliferation of contemporary channels and modes of distribution, from the internet to the various self-organizing strategies afforded by the digital, how are resources themselves being repurposed? And how are artists, makers, and designers responding to these shifts within classifications of material when the digital methods and materials have become increasingly mutable, hackable, rewritable and inevitably immaterial. The program works to address three key questions. How are material forms being radically reconfigured, redeveloped by African and African diasporic practitioners? What kinds of narratives are emerging out of the contemporary practices working at the, me at the seams of art and design? And how are interdisciplinary collaborations producing new modes of engagement with material cultures, popular culture, history, politics, and aesthetics? And I'm very happy that I'm not the one who have to answer all these questions. We have four days of a full program with uh, three presentations a day. And we will begin immediately with, uh, with the keynote by Eko Eshun. I'm really particularly very pleased to welcome Eko here because uh, I've been an admirer of his work since many years. And, uh, and I think that uh, he was the perfect person to introduce this, uh, this uh, thematic focus that we, we put upon forum this year. And, uh, Echo uh, just closed uh, a wonderful exhibition. Some of you who are London-based may have seen it. It's uh, the exhibition made you look, dandyism and black masculinity. And uh, this is what he will talk about and uh, in weaving the, uh, the theme that we are discussing these four days around it, how design uh, influences photography and popular uh, visual culture. Oiko is a writer and cultural commentator. The former director of the Institute of Contemporary Art in London, he is chair of the fourth Plinth Commissioning Group overseeing the UK's most significant public art project. He is creative director of the Calvert 22 Foundation, 
a leading art institution in London dedicated to contemporary culture of Eastern Europe. ECHO appears regularly on TV and radio news and cur on current affairs, and his writing appears in publications including the Financial Times, The Guardian, The Independent, The Observer, Vogue, you name it. His, his book, Black Gold of the Sun, was nominated for the Orwell, Orwell Pri Prize for Political Writing, and he is the curator of the recent critically acclaimed exhibition that I just mentioned, Made You Look. Please welcome Echo. Thank you very much for you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming this afternoon. Um, uh, I mean, that was a sort of very big set of things, but I'm going to talk a bit more specifically, chiefly really about um, the, the, the show that, that, that I put on and has just uh, closed at the Photographer's Gallery, Made You Look. Dandyism and black masculinity, and I just want to kind of talk through some th themes from that show. Um, the, 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 when I was kind of thinking about the show, really, um, or the show kind of tries to explore the self-image uh, of black men, really, how they define their own kind of presence and identity in front of the camera. And when I was putting it together, it struck me that we're sort of at a kind of particular time right now particular time I guess I would characterise when it comes to anyway, when it comes to thinking about the kind of position of black men in society. Uh, I think we're at a particular time of, I'd say kind of two poles of high visibility and high vulnerability. Uh, just to explain that. I think on one hand, we have a time, I'd say, of unprecedented uh, cultural influence for black people, black men in this instance, you know, missed um, significantly Obama uh, in the White House for a few more months after eight years, um, but also on a kind of cultural level, if you look just at Britain, for instance, uh, people like Steve McQueen, uh, David Adjaye, who's just opened a museum in Washington, uh, Chris Afili, uh, Yinka, all sorts of people, and then kind of broader kind of uh, international literary figures, people like Marlon James, not to even mention, you know, the musicians, the hip-hop artists, you know, Kanye, Kendrick, Jay-Z, all of these figures. So we have this kind of time of, you know, genuine significant cultural influence, but at the same time, high vulnerability. You know, uh, in Britain, uh, more than 500 black and minor minority ethnic people have died in suspicious circumstances uh, while in state detention over the past 25 years. No one's been arrested, no one's been charged or successfully prosecuted in any of those cases. In America, obviously, we have a situation one in three black men can expect to go to jail uh, or some form of incarceration in their lifetime. And you know, the <coughs> list of, of African-American men killed and highlighted by uh, Black Lives Matter movement just continues to grow and grow. You know, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamia Rice, Freddie Gray, all of these people, all of this list, uh, you know, very sadly continues to grow. It feels like month after month. Um, so it seems to me that <coughs> we're living in this particular heightened moment. And all of these factors for me are reminders of the fact that, that being a black man isn't a kind of neutral position. Certainly when it comes to dealing with kind of the visuals of all of this, uh, being a black man means, means being subject to the white gaze, uh, you know, which is to say this kind of accreted history of fear and fantasy that frames how mainstream white society looks at thinks about 
black people. So being a black man becomes, means becoming an object of prejudice, fascination, psychological projection. You know, the tropes are very, very familiar ones. You know, black men as kind of preternaturally gifted at sports and entertainment, as creatures of overdeveloped musculature, of ungovernable sexuality, you know, liable to uh, lapse into violence, lawlessness. Um, you know, Du Bois, of course, uh, you know, famously talked about this 100 years ago. Du Bois talked about um, double consciousness. You know, to, uh, he talked about this pe peculiar sensation of living as a black person physically within and psychologically outside uh, white society. You know, Du Bois talked about this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. And this, you know, is a subject that, that Fanon turns to also in, you know, his pivotal scene in Black Skin, White Masks, uh, this scene where Fanon's on a train, this uh, white boy um, sees Fanon approaching, looks up and says, look, a Negro, mama, see the Negro, I'm frightened. You know, for Fanon, this is a, a moment of psychic assault. You know, he's forced to see himself through the eyes of the child. He's forced to see himself as brute and threatening. And then he's kind of dumped back in his own body, uh, in his own skin, kind of objectified and humiliated. So he says, you know, my body was given back to me, sprawled out, distorted, recolored, clad in mourning. Um, and, you know, yet again, we return to these sensations of, of psychic assault, of bodily remove and return in Ralph Ellison, in Invisible Man. You know, again, famously, Ellison's hero discovers that uh, his blackness renders him beneath sight to white society, even, at even as it lends him a heightened visibility across society as this kind of stereotype figure. And, and Ellison writes, uh, you ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you're part of all the sound and anguish. You curse and you swear to make them recognise you, and alas, it's seldom successful. Um, so with some of these issues of, of visibility, vulnerability, double consciousness, bodily return as background, um, you know, I wanted to put together this show um, to kind of focus uh, on how black men do construct themselves. And I guess the central focus was this idea of a, a black dandy. And in, in a way, dandyism uh, perhaps seems a, a sort of uh, trivial way to address these matters if you're in the era of Black Lives Matter. Uh, but, you know, as the killing of Trayvon Martin shows, you know, kids shot allegedly because of, you know, because of wearing a hoodie, apparently. Uh, you know, dress can sometimes be the difference between life and death. Um, the, you know, the dictionary definition of a dandy is a man unduly concerned with looking stylish and fashionable. Um, but dandyism, uh, as practiced by the likes of, you know, Byron, Wilde, uh, the Count d'Orsay, is also about using dress to deliberately flout conventions of class, taste, gender, sexuality. You know, these historical figures, uh, they had, to some extent, an advantage because they used their status as artists and aristocrats to deliberately contravene social norms. That's what, these, that's what they were doing as dandies. But for me, that raises the question, what about the black dandy? And as much as the black dandy who has none of these protections of status that these historical dandies 
have? How does dress become a mode of self-expression when the consequences of making yourself truly visible in this way are potentially lethal? Um, so, in this exhibition, I want to argue for dandyism as something more than a statement of individual style. I wanted to propose dandyism as a form of radical personal politics, as a willed flamboyance that flies in the face of conventional constructions of the, of the black masculine. Um, and I think that, that's certainly the case uh, when we look at, for instance, this image. There we go. When we look at this image uh, by a New York photographer, Jeffrey Henson Scales, it's called Young Man in Plaid. NYC, it's from 1994. But what I love is that, I love the a history of this. This could be from any time in, in you know, two, three decades uh, across time. Um, you know, the sort of figure at the center of it is strikingly beautiful. Um, he's a kind of slightly louche figure. And he fits what uh, Monica Miller, who's I think the sort of prime kind of historian of, the, of these concepts of black dandyism. It fits Monica Miller's description of the racialized dandy as a figure who's uh, both masculine and feminine, aggressively heterosexual, not, yet not quite a real man, a vision of an upstanding citizen and an outsider, broadcasting his alien status by, uh, by his clothing. This dark body in a good suit. Um, so this donning of stylish clothes, I'd say, acts as a, as a form of radical personal politics, a deliberate transgression of a social order that would otherwise render uh, black people unseen or beneath regard. Um, the earliest uh, photos in the, in the show, and I'll, so I'll talk you through some of these things, the earliest photos in the show come from uh, 1904, um, come in fact from, they're in fact, they're, they're, they're so early that the, 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 the archivist who found them uh, doesn't necessarily confirm where they're from. We think they're from Senegal in 1904. And uh, this series of photos kind of de yeah. depicts um, you know, a series of kind of young black men uh, asserting this kind of this quite powerful hmm, asserting this kind of quite powerful kind of personal presence through their stylish dress. I, I, you know, I can't say for certain what's going on in these images, but what fascinates me is that they seem to me a sort of deliberate inversion of kind of a, of a colonial gaze. You know, they seem to me to be very much about these men dressing up as French colonialists, deciding that they can, that rather than being subject to this kind of anthropologized colonial gaze that's typical at that time in terms of photography, they'll wear the clothes, they'll command the camera, they'll do so better, more stylishly than perhaps French colonialists around them. But they have a kind of moment of power, of swagger, champagne, all of these things. So these kind of beautiful images, but they're not without uh, their important subtexts, I'd say. And we see something similar to this in the work of Malik Sidibe. Uh, so, you know, Sidibe, you know, we all know Malik Sidibe's work. Uh, you know, he's chronicling, he's chronicling the life of kind of newly independent um, Mali, uh, after it claims independence from France in 1960. And in these images, we see uh, a young nation coming to life. We see these young men insisting on being seen. I think, you know, one of the crucial things about, about 
Sirbay is the, you know, he's, he's a commercial studio photographer. So in these photographs, he's, you know, he's doing a job, he's photographing these people. But what I love is how they're insistent on being seen. So they come into the studio with their own props, with their own clothes, hats, you know, radio, because they want to, you know, because here is a young modern nation in its sophistication, in its style. None of these, you know, none of these poses, none of these clothes are an accident. This is who they are at this moment in time. This is what a young independent country can look like. This is who its citizens are. And I think the sort of beauty of that, the, uh, the kind of release and freedom of that, I think comes through in some of these photos. Um, uh, and in a slightly different way, I think we also see something like that in the work of Colin Jones. So um, this is a series of photos that I include in the show. Um, so Colin Jones is a British photographer who's been uh, taking photos from the, since actually about the 1930s or 40s. This is a, this is the, 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 a couple of images here from a series called um, The Black House. So The Black House was, uh, it was, a, it was a house on the Holloway Road in North London um, that was around in the 70s. It was, it was essentially a kind of hostel for young uh, black people who were at odds with society. You know, basically, 70s Britain, without kind of mincing words, is, you know, is a pretty racist place where it's very difficult as kind of young black people to find a space, to be yourself, to assert yourself. So the black house was this kind of drop-in place where they kind of lived and hung out um, and where you know, didn't have work, didn't have status, they didn't have many things, but they could hang out, they could hang out there together. Uh, so it was kind of a dilapidated place, but it was also a place of community. Uh, so Colin Jones kind of went backwards and forwards uh, to the place for four years, kind of shooting portraits of these kind of people in there. And what he does is find dandies in there. But dandyism, you know, in properly qualified terms, in as much as this isn't dandyism about aristocratic elegance, this is what happens when you don't have much in the way of status, when you don't have much in the way of position, when clothes become something very important under those circumstances, when deportment, when the way you dress, the way you carry yourself, the way you assert yourself becomes a crucial element of your being and your identity. And I think we see that in this photo. There, I mean, you know, for the, for the purposes of the show, I sort of uh, kind of identify the photos with men. The photos with women in them are just as striking. And in all of them, you see this very hard-won um, assertion of self. You see this very hard-won sense that stylishness is really important. It's at the core of who these people want to be, how they want to be seen. Um, y uh, you know, all of these, Colin Jones' work, Bay's work, uh, even those unknown photos from before, brings to mind Again, something that Fanon said. Fanon talked about the transgressive potential of style. You know, Fanon said, I grasp my narcissism with both hands and I turn my back on the degradation of those who would make me a mere mechanism. You know, Fanon talks about agency here. He talks about how you come alive through narcissism. And we see that, I think, in these photos. And this tactic of style as assertion, as rebellion even, has deep historical roots. Uh, Monica Miller uh, has coined the term redemptive narcissism, which is a term I, actually, I love, uh, to describe how style has historically operated as a tool of transgression and resistance, all the way back to the slave trade. Um, so 
when enslaved Africans uh, disembarked in America in the 17th, 18th century, you know, they were deliberately fitted with drab, crudely stitched clothes made from the coarsest uh, cottons. Uh, because along with chains on their ankles, stripping away their names, banning of their native language, uh, this taking away of, of clothes um, was, a, was another way to dehumanise them, to turn them from individuals into property, into chattel. Um, you know, South Carolina, South Carolina even had a, their Negro Act of 1735, even went so far as to stipulate the kinds of material allowable for what they called Negro dress. So typically, this was only the cheapest coarse calicos, checked cottons, scotch plaids, nothing but the worst, basically. Um, and, yet, and yet, slaves repeatedly contested attempts to control them and their identity through dress. They insisted on their individuation by fashioning uh, coats and skirts and jackets through scrounging scraps of material uh, via barter or theft or other means, and then spinning, weaving, dyeing fabrics to make these vivid patchwork uh, clothes, uh, often of patching colours, of, often of clashing colours, decorated with gold and silver buttons, with bright ribbons, um, all the better, essentially, to accentuate the brightness, the vividness, the aliveness of the people who wore those clothes. And I think one way to appreciate the subversive value of style for black people in bondage at that time actually is to examine uh, some of the newspaper ads for runaway slaves that would run in American newspapers in the 18th century. And a striking number of those adverts place an emphasis on the variety and distinctiveness with, with, with which slaves styled themselves. So you get these adverts for runaway slaves, and time after time they describe slaves as addicted to dress, remarkably fond of dress, generally dressy, very fond of showy dress. You, all these adverts. Uh, so, for instance, there's a sort of particular notice from, um, it's posted in Augusta, Virginia in 1774 as an ad for a runaway slave, um, which, you know, attracts my eye, kind of during research. Um, so there's an ad for a plantation owner who seeks the return of a runaway named Bacchus, who's described in this advert as cunning, artful, and sensible, and very capable of forging a tale to impose on the unwary. Um, so as well as noting, as well as noting his intelligence and, and resourcefulness, the advert also identifies Bacchus as a protean dandy, as one who has made his escape with actually kind of an improbable amount of clothes, with a vast wardrobe. So it talks about how Bacchus has run away with two white, with a number of things, including two white Russia drill coats, uh, blue plush breeches, a fine cloth pompadour waistcoat, two or three thin summer jackets, five or six white shirts, neat shoes, a fine hat cut and cocked in the macaroni figure, uh, a double-milled drab greatcoat, and sundry other wearing apparels. Um, so I have this image of Bacchus, dressed in his finery, attempting to walk out or escape from the South with all the swagger and panache of a man apparently born into liberty. Clothes allowed him to perhaps 
camouflage his appearance, or perhaps was something that he chose to hold on to as a significant element of who he was and how he wanted to define himself in bondage and hopefully in freedom. You know, even after the end of slavery, uh, the assertion of an individual style by African Americans remains a, a charged issue. So there are numerous accounts, you know, of black men being beaten sometimes to death for dressing or acting above their station. Obviously, this goes through to today. Um, but there are also stories, uh, you know, black men using style as a strategy of resistance. So just one last kind of historical kind of uh, example. So in 1841, there's a notorious gang of river workers who stand trial in Mississippi uh, for bank robbery and murder. Um, you know, the charges against them run long, as well as murder, they're also charged with burglary, smuggling, passing of counterfeit bills. But style remains an important part of this gang's self-identity. So they stand trial in Mississippi, uh, and they all attend the style dressed with conspicuous extravagance. So the gang's leader, Madison Henderson, dons a range of expensive hats throughout the trial, and in the dock, he describes their style and attitude as one of fashionable rascality. Uh, and scholar uh, Thomas Buchanan has noticed that the gang has noted that the gang employed what he describes as flamboyant style in order to transform subservient identities into a defiant sense of resistance and independence. Dis and despite, or possibly more likely because of that attitude of fashionable rascality, um, the gang was found guilty of murder and all its members were hanged and beheaded. Um, but in these historical examples, I think it's clear that dress becomes a critique of racially deterministic notions of black people as property, as chattel, as objects. And reveals instead, and dress reveals instead that identity is mutable and black people have historically been able to construct an idea of themselves through dress as independent of the uh, structures, of the prejudices of, of a kind of prevailing power structure. Um, so in all these reasons, dandyism becomes, dandyism becomes a way of taking ownership of the black body in opposition to the uh, repressions of the white gaze. And simultaneously, Black dandyism also functions, I would say, as a critique of masculinity itself. So one of the premises of, of, of my show is that there's no fixed or true or singular way to be a man. There's no set of single characteristics that's authentically manly. Rather, uh, as a sociologist Judith Butler uh, observes, gender is performative. You know, gender is a mode of behaviour formed through custom, social construction, rather than something fixed in the skin. And I think we see this performativeness of masculinity. It's one of the things I wanted to explore in the show. We see this, you know, in the work of Samuel Fosso. You know, so Samuel Fosso, Cameroonian artist, um, who began taking photos, began taking self-portraits after he opened his own commercial uh, photo studio in Central African Republic at the age of 13, in fact. So in the uh, 70s, um, Fosso would take uh, photos during the daytime, and at nighttime, once the studio was closed, he'd use up the end of a roll of film by taking a series of self-portraits 
uh, himself. And, you know, these portraits are kind of fascinating, I think, because they're all about Fosso. They, they weren't originally, these, these photos weren't originally intended for display. Obviously, now he's gone on to, you know, it's a remarkable career. Um, but initially, these photos that we see here weren't intended for display. They were him playing around in the studio uh, in the evening. But what we see him here it, through these is kind of taking on a variety of, of um, positions, of poses, of identities, playing with masculinity, playing with gender, status, power, all through dress and deportment and impersonation. He's, you know, he's the kind of great trickster uh, of, of portraiture, I think. Um, there's also an interesting kind of side issue here, in, in as much as these photos have been taken in the Central African Republic in the mid-70s, which is a country under the dictatorship of Jean Badel Bokassa at that time, who, as a dictator, has banned the wearing of items of clothing, such as uh, flares, tight shirts, platform shoes. So we see here a sort of small act of personal rebellion against the strictures of a state, but also this very knowing way of kind of critiquing some of the ways that men are supposed to behave. So in those photos we saw, he's perhaps what? He's perhaps a playboy, a scholar, a dandy, a kind of disco figure, all of these things. And Fosso's, Fosso's whole career you know, has been modelled on this sense of understanding that there isn't a fixity to uh, masculinity, to race, to identity. And he plays with these time and time again. Um, similar, in a different way, the work of Hassan Hajjaj. Um, some of Hassan's work is, uh, you know, you can see some of his uh, images in, uh, in the fair uh, around us here. So Hassan Hajjaj uh, was born in Morocco uh, in the early 60s. And, you know, his work combines uh, pop art, fashion imagery, North African studio photography, music, club culture, all, all of these elements. And what I think um, Hassan is especially good at is, in a way, finding a kind of centeredness for these figures. You know, the important thing is um, Hassan constructs this entire image. He designs the clothes that these figures wear, designs the backdrops, designs the frame, which are often, often his uh, portraits are kind of framed with uh, kind of um, uh, kind of cans of produce. I'm not quite sure what, the, what those ones are. What, uh, you know, this is, so here you know, we have a kind of frame made up with uh, pilchard tins. And he's very interested in um, uh, pop culture, but he's also very interested in situating his figures in the centre of a globalised world, of a world where kind of commerce and signs and symbols of people, identity, capital, commodity, are all shifting around. And traditionally, the, the, the role of the person of colour in this situation is sort of as, a, as a kind of, um, kind of, uh, reluctant extra, you know, black people, people of colour, uh, you know, cast as refugees, uh, migrants, the sort of victims of globalisation, which is very true. Nevertheless, I think Hassan Hajjaj's work also uh, focuses on the kind of um, the figures, the, cos the, cos the cosmopolitan figures who are able to surf across the surface of all of these things and uh, live and create work that is about bringing together contradiction rather than being kind of crushed by it. So, you know, these images are all of kind of creative figures. The large one, J.K. Hayford, the fashion designer, this is Kazaya Jones, musician. This is another musician, musician African boy. So he tends to um, create portraits of kind of creative figures who are used to adapting 
and playing with their own identity, even as they're also very aware of these kind of swirls of kind of commerce and signs that are going on around them. So all of these, again, are about this understanding that there, that there isn't a fixity to, uh, to a singular black position or a singular black image. I think a further point to note is that in addition to standing in resistance to the white imaginary, I would also say that black dandyism also carries a yet further critique of narratives of respectability politics that exist within black bourgeois society. Uh, you know, I speak as a sort of, as a son of African parents, kind of African son, and anyone who has this experience knows that your entire life as a child is determined by your parents insisting that the only way you will succeed in life is, because, is if you can be a doctor, a lawyer, something respectable, so on. And the sort of the wider sense of that, of kind of respectability, respectability politics also is that the only way you should comport yourself, therefore, is by dressing smartly, dressing neatly, uh, doing as well as you can, showing somehow that by your deeds and by your dress and by your respectability that you are worthy of respect. I would resist this notion. I'd suggest that dandyism resists that notion because it resists this notion that good manners and forbearance are the only route to individual attainment, that they're the only route to collective racial uplift. And implicit in that logic is this notion that there's, an there's another yet authentic form of black masculinity, which is uh, about this kind of God-fearing, decent, hard-working father, husband, breadwinner. You know, this is the Booker T. Washington mold. This actually is the mold of pre-scandal Bill Cosby, this notion of personal responsibility. So what I like is that actually dandyism is impatient of that too. It's impatient of respectability politics. Uh, and what it does is embrace inauthentic models of masculinity. Uh, that might come from gay men, from transgender figures, from cross-dressing rappers like Young Thug, or indeed, and, uh, or expressed via um, the work of, of a photographer like Christine Lee Moulman. So Christine Lee Moulman is a quite young South African photographer. He's uh, been taking photos in Soweto, and he's uh, been kind of exploring the complexities of modern South African uh, society and identity. She takes photos of kind of young people and township culture, and her figures are often these androgynous figures who reject fixed labels of gender or race or sexuality. Um, they're kind of louche and they're sort of playful figures, um, but they're all about not being particularly um, respectable, not being particularly buttoned down. And I think this is an important space that the, the, the black dandy occupies. Uh, you know, this is an ongoing critique of fixed ideas of authenticity, of black males, and embrace instead of masculinity as performance, as play, as invention. And perhaps a question that, that hovers over all these issues of visibility, vulnerability, double consciousness, uh, on a very personal level, I think, for black men, you know, in the end is, you know, how do you get by? How do you live in a society where in one way or another people are uh, determining who you are, who you should be, before you even enter a room. How do you live under those circumstances without fear or without debilitating anger in a world where you're always reminded that your body doesn't belong to you? Um, 
I think the answer, as at least proposed by some of the works in, 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 in my show Made You Look, is to demand to be seen on your own terms via the style, attitude you have that announces your ambitions and your desires, that announces your sense of pride, your sense of inner belief. Um, so the Russian Ghanaian photographer uh, Liz Johnson Art has been uh, taking photos for about 30 years, kind of around the world, uh, often capturing black men, uh, kind of poised between private contemplation and public display. Uh, and her subjects often seem acutely aware of their position, there's the kind of Ralph Ellison-like position as hyper-visible and invisible. But where in Du Bois' original concept, say double consciousness, is a burden, this sense of being looked at is, is always a burden, in Johnson Arter's work, we actually see something else. We see, this, we see um, her subjects carry their racialized awareness with something more like a defiant confidence. Um, so none more so than, in fact, this figure. Uh, this kind of young man that we see here, you know, he hasn't got much going on. He's sitting on a sort of um, drinks crate, shot in Jamaica, probably not the kind of wealthiest, highest status figure, but he's making everything work for him. You know, he's coordinating. He's got your white loafers with a kind of snaffle on them. He's got a white T-shirt. He's got a white cap. He's got the gold necklace, he's got the gold watch. Um, and then he's got this kind of flash of red with trousers. He absolutely knows how he looks. He absolutely knows that he looks good. Doesn't matter what else he's got going on. He's holding his position. And he has this expression, I think, of fierce insouciance. You know, he's carrying himself like a king, despite the humbleness of, it, of its surroundings. You know, and like him, for the most part, the men that I featured in, in the show, you know, they're not wearing the finest of clothes. And overall, they seem, have seemed less concerned with what they wear than how they wear it. You know, so overall, you see, their style has been, or is, by turns, flamboyant, provocative, arresting, camp, louche, playful gloriously assertive and what they share I think despite the fact that some of the work I've shown you takes place across a hundred years takes place across three continents what they share is a kind of fierce self-possession that I would say makes it clear that this idea of black dandyism is about more than dress alone you know there's a sort of alternative concept of black dandyism that says uh, that really insists on a sort of superficial celebration of black men in stylish suits, as if black men should be applauded for the fact that they can dress well. That's not the aim of, that's not how I think about it. It wasn't the aim of the show. The aim of the show really was to look at dandyism through the eyes of dandies. And for me, dandyism isn't simply about appearance, as I hope I've made clear. It's the bridge to a less fixed, more mutable notion of masculinity. It's about confounding taste or expectation or prejudice in order to establish a place of personal freedom, a place where the black male body 
is a site of liberation, not oppression, a place where the black male body is transformed from a, from a full stop, from a fixed known commodity into a question mark, a site of perpetual interrogation and exploration, a site of perpetual possibility. Thank you. works. Okay. Yeah, it's good. Wow. Thank you very much. I'll join you now at a more comfortable place of uh, sitting. There are so many things that that you said and uh, I, uh, I made a few notes and uh, I like to f begin with what I heard last. You said something that I wrote down as uh, style and dandyism as a site of, com of confounding taste against imposed perception. This is what I wrote, this is not what you said, but this is my translation, right. yeah, yeah. my translation of it because I think it also, also repercutes with how you begin with uh, style and sort of design, like fashion, but I mean dressing design as an assertion, as a means of uh, like a redemptive notion mm -hmm. of uh, dehumanizing process of the black male and also as a subversive value. So um, I think I, uh, I don't really have a a question as such. When, uh, when I was thinking of uh, what should we discuss this year at Forum within the fair, it became quite uh, obvious to me that this idea of, uh, of design is very limited in a way of uh, when, you, when you mention design uh, for lots of people the mind association uh, goes immediately to object design. Whereas uh, I come from a cultural background where design is so uh, present, <coughs> so everywhere. And I mean, in a daily life, in a daily kind of uh, uh, construction and consumption of life. And, uh, and I remember a discussion I had with, uh, with a dear friend who's uh, Amelie Klein, who curated the uh, Making Africa show, where we had this long discussion about style versus design, where I think in the so-called, I mean, not so-called, in the Western kind of understanding, uh, there is a hierarchy between the two terms where uh, whereas style is sort of considered lower in that hierarchy. 
And in my understanding, I mean, the way I, I was raised and grew up and understood culture and style is higher. So <laughs> I would like you, if you have an, uh, a position about that, because I think it's quite interesting to, to, uh, to also look at it in the context of, uh, of this uh, project that you have, where <laughs> it's for me all about style, and style goes really beyond, um, you know, appearances. It's, a it's an entire attitude, you know, that is immaterial and sometimes also, you know, ungraspable. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a, you know, it's, it's an interesting when you come to try and um, address these things because there's a temptation, I think, to um, to default to essentialism. Mm -hmm. There's a temptation to default to an essential position, which is that black people have got an innate sense of style. Mm. Let's say that. Yeah, Karen will say well. Mm. My thing is, well, yes, they do, but it's not a... It doesn't just happen. Mm -hmm. It come out of biology. Mm -hmm. It comes out of circumstance. Mm -hmm. You know, and the, the... My kind of earlier career where I started doing anything um, was I used to write for style magazines. Mm. That's, that's, I used to be an editor of a magazine called The Face, which was a kind of um, fashion style magazine uh, in its time. And, um, but the way I started doing that was because I spent a vast amount of my youth lo looking at uh, subcultures, looking at how people dress in Britain, looking at how uh, different tribes of kind of young people dressed and what they wore and why they wore those things. And then also, you know, anytime I go to Ghana, where my family's from, you see not tropes of kind of, uh, or tribes of kids dressed dimly, but you see all these kind of provisional ways that kind mm -hmm. of black people dress mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, all these kind of open, um, always mutable kind of forms of physical expression that people have. And it seems to me really important to celebrate those, mm. but also to acknowledge that they don't come necessarily from an easy place, mm -hmm. that they come out of this sense of a desire to be heard, to be seen, and they come also potentially mm -hmm. from an impatience sometimes mm -hmm. with um, hierarchies of design and so on. I mean, I have a simple thing, which is that taste is the enemy. Mm -hmm. You know, that good taste is the thing to be resisted at all counts. You know, dandies are very good at confounding taste. They're very good at determining things on their own terms. And actually, most artists, you know, the reason successful artists would always um, create work that is not tasteful, is not designed, mm -hmm. can't, successful works can't just be simply appropriated as something nice to put in a corner. Mm. A successful work is something that challenges you, that confounds you, that questions you, that provokes, that does all of these things purely beyond the aesthetics of a thing. Mm. Which doesn't say the aesthetics aren't important, because good-looking things are good, they're great. But actually, I think the things that are super interesting are the things that also have an edge to them. And I think with this show, what I was really interested in was, or what I was keen not to do, was present this body of work with just some nice looking pictures. Mm -hmm. The point is, say, actually, look, uh, these nice looking pictures aren't antithetical to a position that is sometimes about survival, sometimes about narcissism, but sometimes also about anger, sometimes mm. also about disaffection. There's no discontinuity between mm. those points. 
like style as a demand of respect somehow. Yeah, yeah, somehow, yeah. 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 I mean, is it too point? much to ask? Yeah. You know, it, it's, I mean, it's really, really important, mm. I think. Mm. And again, I think what I was fascinated by is the sort of perversity of that. Mm. You know, we say it's really important, but actually it's also just clothes. Mm. It's also just dress. But if you have a choice, how would you like to dress? You know? Would you like to be dressed in ways that people can see more than just the surface of you? Can go beneath that, and it's such an it's such an interesting being. You know, Britain isn't a place that that has historically kind of embraced that in mm. a way. You know, Britain's a place kind of comes out of sort of Protestant nineteenth century. Uh, that you know is suspicious of too much that's aesthetic. You know, the art world also is a place that's suspicious of works that are too sometimes too elegant, too seductive. Um, but actually, again, I don't think there's a contradiction mm. necessarily. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more. I mean, you spoke very much about, you know, the, the inherent uh, role of style and design and fashion, of course, of, you know, dressing up is uh, uh, for, for the black masculinity and kind of in, in, in its process of uh, uh, revisibilization, if I may speak so. Um, but I wonder if you can speak more a little bit about the role that photography played into that oh, and the relationship that photography really established with all this. Yeah. Uh, uh, this yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, the thing is, you know, these aren't just photos. There's all the things I've shown, they're not just random photos mm -hmm. in a way. I think there's Two things. One, I mean, by and large, photos I've shown are by black photographers, but not exclusively, in fact. There's a couple that are white photographers. In the end, that doesn't make that much of a difference. What makes a difference is having that sort of acuity of gaze and kind of dedication and inquiry that's involved. So most of, those, most of these projects I've shown are sort of have been ongoing, long-term projects. You, know, mm. you can talk about Sidibe's work as a career mm. that you know, lasts for 40, 50 years as one single project, for instance. You, know, you can talk about Samuel Fosso's work in exactly the same way, or Liz Johnson Arter's work here, which is a sort of 30-year process of, she works out in the street very mm. often, but she's very dedicated to this thing of capturing, uh, of very often, black individuals, mm. And then trying to create empathy with them, trying to establish empathy with them, so that you move from a sort of objectified gaze to something where they have at least some form of agency in the image, where there's a sort of there's enough of a complicit relationship to create a genuine portrait rather than an outsider's gaze on them. And that mm -hmm. I think is particularly important when it comes to um, photographing black people. Mm. So I think the the the, the Wrote, you know, it's an interesting side issue. Um, after the show went up, I got a slightly angry note on Facebook from, you know, from a photographer who's, who's quite well known, whose work I know, who's done quite a lot of work in this area around kind of uh, black style and dandelion. He wrote me a slightly angry note saying, why wasn't I in the show? I should have been in the show. This is what I do. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with his work. I actually like his work, but I didn't want to include it in the show because it was kind of over-familiar to my... Uh, uh, sense of things, but also because I wanted absolutely to get away from this sense that all, you know, the photographer's only role somehow is to shoot these people mm -hmm. looking mm -hmm. good or vibrant or dynamic or attractive. That's not really the issue, mm -hmm. you know. It's not about the flamboyance, you know. 
Dandyism isn't about the flamboyant. Mm. Dandyism is about, if you want, elegance, grace, assertion, all of these things, you know. But it's like, but it's not about the surface, mm -hmm. oddly enough. You know. It's a state of mind yeah. also. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I would agree with that. Mm. And so the, the, the skillful photography is the work that actually understands that as a proposition in the first place. Mm. And then actually manages to realise that. Mm. You know, it's not an easy process. And, um, you know, I was really pleased, happy to be able to get most of the um, artists that I wanted to get for the show. In fact, pretty much everyone I wanted to get for the show. Um, because the thing that united them across 100 years, across three different continents, is absolutely that deep empathy for their subjects. Empathy enough to, um, to honour them as subjects rather than objects, mm. as individuals rather than something to be looked at. I, yes, oh, Lisa is already, <laughs> is already. Okay, I, w I, I would like to open and uh, I think that there are a few questions and I see Lisa impatiently yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wanting to uh, engage, please. Thanks, Chloe. Um, thanks, I really loved your show when I saw it. I thought it was a very important project. Um, but I wondered when I saw it, I was sort of surprised to see that there was no mention of the suppers, you know, of Brazzaville and Johannesburg and that. And so what you just said about dandyism mm. just made me think, do you think, because I kind of think of dandyism as sort of almost a predecessor of the contemporary suppers, but I'm thinking maybe you, it was a maybe a deliberate omission because maybe that's more surface and not this state of mind are you saying? I mean, I, I, the thing is, I think you, I think you, can, you can absolutely make a case for, for, for suppers in, in exactly these ways. But I kind of felt the case had been made, that's all. Mm -hmm. And I, I just felt like I actually only had a limited amount of room in the show yeah. and I wanted to go further than that. Because again, I feel there's, a, there's another potential trap, which is to say, dandyism equals suppers, therefore we know all of that. And I just thought there were more stories and, and more maybe ideas. Like it's more superficial. Well, I, I mean. Well, I don't necessarily agree that the suppers are superficial, in the contrary. I mean, these are people highly invested in, uh, you know, in uh, dandyism, and uh, it's really, a, a, it's almost a religion. I, so I mean, <laughs> I, I, th I think, I think uh, you know, in a, because we know it. It's a subject that I think demands sort of proper interrogation and mm -hmm. has had that at different mm -hmm. times. And mm -hmm. I felt like, well, actually, look, I have the space to do that. I want to do some other things rather than having that conversation again. Mm -hmm. Not that conversation's wrong, but yeah, I was kind of impatient to go further. Yes, yes please. <coughs> Thank you. Can you wait for the microphone? And can, oh, okay, John. Well, Thank please. you. Um, 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 I feel as if I'm, I'm just about tuning my guitar. Um, and Can you speak up a little bit more? Okay, I, I, I said I, I kind of feel like if I'm tuning my guitar or saxophone or something. And, and it is to do with that, the, the, where you began the conversation about, about questions about style. And I wondered if we could just stretch it a bit and think of style as a way of marking an esthiosis, yes, an, an esthiosis that, that, that signals all kinds of unsettled questions about the body, especially the African body or the African male body. So mine would not be to, to an either or or to privilege style over design, but rather to use the con conceptually the notion of style as a way of marking, if you like, an African 
estiosis. Yeah? And so what's going on there then is a kind of, it's a kind of, if you like, dethroning discourses of aesthetics from elsewhere into this other possibility or these other multiple possibilities. And that seems to me to be where the preoccupation with style begins to have a purchase in the broader conversations we're having about that work. Do you have something to I say mean, I about disagree that? With that. <laughs> <laughs> John doesn't ask a question, you know. He just makes a, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a point which is uh, absolutely valid. Please. Hello. My, my question is not about men, but about women, because I especially focus on women. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to know if um, black masculinity is linked to dandism. Do you think like uh, black femininity is linked to feminism? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you I know, the know. Well, I mean, go ahead. <laughs> I, I mean, have my position about yeah, that. Uh, I mean, I think sort of femininity <coughs> and feminism, you know, they're not the same thing in a way. I mean, I, basically, that's a, that's a sort of massive kind of topic in its own terms. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, people have asked me, oh, well, you know, if you've done black masculinity, would you do a kind of black female dandy mm -hmm. show? And so on. And I think, I think the difference, perhaps, is that um, women have historically had more space to express themselves through dress, through style, and so on. But equally, they've also had all sorts of constraints that come into play, exactly around body image, identity, all of these things. I think that um, there's no... I think you can make a correlation between dress and feminism. Um, but equally, along the way, you're going to have a lot of complicated conversation around all of those issues. Um, and in a way, I mean, there's a... you know. The, those debates, I think, are very interesting ones, and actually some of them are ongoing right now about what feminism, you know, what a feminist should look like, how feminists should dress, all of these things. I mean, I don't know what you think, Corey, but... Well, I've, I really think that it's, it's not at all in, uh, in the same kind of set of, of, uh, of how do you say, of, of even opposition or even comparison. Dandyism is totally somewhere else than what feminism is. I mean, uh, I don't even see how you can bring this together in this conversation in the sense that, I mean, dandyism is very much invested. I mean, you gave a very beautiful definition at the beginning, which I cannot relate here, but from my understanding is a, is a is a practice or is a, a state of being. It's not even a practice, it's a state of being that is very much invested in uh, uh, aesthetics, mm -hmm. in style, and not necessarily particularly, of course it has political and historical aspect, but uh, I wouldn't bring it in conversation with feminism. I mean, dandyism is not a translation of revendication and kind of uh, political engagement of male rights, so to speak, which feminism is made mainly stands for in terms of women's issues. So uh, I think it's, it doesn't really speak to each other. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that the, 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 the simplest thing is, I, mean, I think it's an interesting point nevertheless, but 
one of the interesting things I find is that the you know, Oxford English Dictionary definition of dandyism describes it specifically as a male act, which I, you know, mm-hmm. rather than the kind of gender neutral thing, <coughs> dictionary talks about men unduly interested in style and appearance. And I, I, I find that interesting, you know, there are all sorts of counter arguments one could make around that. Not, I mean, including, but not relate, not exclusively limited to the points you've been making. But I think, I guess what I was just interested in this thing, in, with, this, with this show, was kind of exploring, if you want, the, the, that kind of particularity of male experience in this respect. Not to um, uh, suggest that's more important or distinctive than kind of female experience, but because I was really interested in this thing about um, the, yeah, the, the mutability of masculinity. Because I feel it's an area that in many ways is kind of underexplored and style allows you to start talking about maleness as a thing of, yeah, as a thing of possibility rather than fixity. Mm. Do you have another? Huh. Can we Hi. have like so one or two other people? We'll give you the mic back, John. Okay. But we have two other people here. I think it will be nice to hear them. So Is it on? someone else has the mic there. Please go ahead. Hi. And then hi. Um, I just had a very quick question. I made a couple of notes when you were talking, and two things struck me. When you said dress as a form of um, radical personal politics, mm. mm-hmm. and um, I grabbed my narcissism with both hands, which which I really liked. And I thought, at what point, when you look at these images, do you consider it? Um, an act of personal politics or just plain narcissism, people wanting to look good and be photographed looking good without importing into that more complexity around the historical time that they're living in and the constraints on um, their ability to express their personal style? It's, I mean, it's, a, it's a really good question because that's a question that tortured me for a long time because you, know, you put together the show, we look a lot at lots and lots of images and you know, loads of them I discounted because I felt that it wasn't necessarily anything more going on than the, like okay so for instance you know a lot of work there's a real seduction around the 1970s because you can look at Sidibe photos you can look at a lot of different photographers and when you come to studio photograph photography from the 70s almost everything looks amazing you know because it's got the flair to it because it's got literal flair to it so everything looks like it's got a gesture and a pose to it but actually some of that is just to do with the clothes. So part of that is, you know, it's a deliberate reading. I can't necessarily vouch for the accuracy of my reading with any of these things. But what I was looking for anyway was this combination of, of photographers who, who seem to be more interested in something beyond the superficiality of, of kind of uh, image making, but also potentially subjects who seemed interested also in engaging with the camera in order to do more than just say, look at my fine clothes. So it it is a really interesting, it kept me awake at night, you know, several, countless times, because I was really worried that the end result would be just, okay, look, here's that, here's that, does it really mean anything? And what I was trying to search for anyway was hopefully some sense that actually there is something going on here. And I think those Colin Jones images that I showed earlier from the Black House, Holloway Road, 1974, I think for me were kind of examples of that, where you see because their clothes aren't fine, you know? Their clothes are kind of pretty tatty, but the way they wear them stands out so significantly that I felt like, okay, look, 
that's at least one of the, you know, one of the ways where we, I think it's fairly clear that you see something more going on than simply the, um, uh, than simply surface. We have two people here, two guys here. Please go ahead. Um, thank you for this Mike. talk. It's really enlightening. Um, I, first of all, I know we're sitting together, but we haven't met before. <laughs> I want to bring it back to feminism, because I really, I disagree that you can't bring feminism into this, um, because... That's not what I said. <laughs> we said, you know, something sort of along those lines, but I really, something that you said really sort of, um, um, I could really relate to it, and I think all women can relate to it in general, is how do you live in a society where your body doesn't belong to you, yeah. right? I think women in general, regardless of their color, identity, or religion, can all relate to that so much that we relate to it with a, such a heavy heart. Um, and I mean, between burkini bands or white feminist liberation movements, straight hair or curly hair, fair and lovely whitening products or tanning products, there's definitely a war on the female body. So. And we saw how dandyism is a way to reclaim and humanize black bodies by black people, and that really brings back Jamie Foxx's character on Django Unchained, mm. um, which is you know, portrayed as, as very badass and cool, right? But black women weren't, weren't really represented as such in the movie. Um, so there's this question about how do black women who are arguably more oppressed than black men reclaim their bodies in a way that's, that seems cool and empowering. And to uh, add more layers to this, black women were a lot more dehumanized in colonial photography and art more than men. So why not put around the show that sort of humanizes black women through the way they dress in, in photography? Or yeah, look, I mean, I, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. And I think what, uh, one of the points I was trying to make, I wasn't trying to, per se, privilege kind of male experience mm -hmm. over female experience. I just, you know, the focus of the show was simply this. And, I, you know, I think you're uh, completely right in that, you know, under almost any given circumstance, you know, women get the raw end of a deal than men. Do you know, that's a, you Obama know... Obama was president first and we haven't had a female president in the US and, and black people, uh, black men could vote in, in yeah. 70 and women only 50 years yeah. after that. Uh, so there's always, women always have... Mike, sort of please, double we are recording, excuse me. <laughs> no, we are recording. We oh, really okay. need you to use the mic when you speak. Sorry. Sorry, <coughs> should, should I... I so I was saying uh, we've had Obama be before we could have a female president <coughs> and a uh, black man could vote, had the right to vote in 1870, but women only 50 years after that. So there's always this sort of double or triple minority status yeah. that women have to struggle with and they never come out as, you know, nearly as cool or as portrayed as, as sort of empowering. So I'd really just sort of struggle with that and wonder if you had any sort of roots to bridge. Um, like you say, you said something beautiful about dandyism. It was is that it's used to, to sort of to bridge this collective um, sort of race um, um, and to, towards sort of more um, a, a sort of a rehumanization <coughs> and, and dignifying the black race. Just wondering if it I mean something around. 
you know, so I think the truth is, you know, I haven't done this, I've spent the last uh, period of time with this show. I think the shows you can absolutely do that explore, you know, the image of black women, women of colour. Um, you know, in a way, I, I don't have an answer to that because I've been focused on this, but I think, you know, in a way that, you know, those are, I'd be fascinated to see what the result of that would be and actually how you um, resolve some of, some of those issues. In fact, the, the, the last speaker was talking about how you resolve mm -hmm. exploring all of these things without, um, without that being an issue of, of dwelling or being seduced by appearance, you know. I mean, did you see, I mean, t t slight digression, but, um, you know, Bell Hook's response to uh, Beyonce's Lemonade, mm. which I thought was a really interesting uh, argument exactly around some of these areas, exactly around some of the limits of popular representations of black femininity or black feminism and slash empowerment, and about how, certainly in the popular Im imaginary, um, there's, there's, there still remain limited... Um, voices, visions that articulate some of those contradictions successfully without being kind of, uh, without falling prey to some of those contradictions. So I don't have an answer, but I think they're really interesting questions and very timely questions as well. Well, I don't have an answer either. And it's, I really, I've, I, I didn't mean to exclude the conversation or to, to exclude feminism out of this conversation, but at the same time, I also think that somehow we are without being, um, how can I put it, uh, wanting to, to uh, silence or not discuss this, I think that this show has a clear focus and we, we always tend to, to see things against something else as, as opposed to look at what it is, you know. And I really think that this is, uh, this is what it is about. It's not, I mean, it's one show and it's curated with a clear curatorial focus and it's not an exclusionary act. It is an active act of focusing on masculinity. And I think that it is really important that uh, uh, the audience, and especially women, don't always want to, you know, oppose it. Oh, they talk about men, so why aren't they talking about women? I mean, come on, you know. So, and also, I, I responded to, 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 to your neighbor who were, from what I understood of it, trying to sort of oppose or bring together dandyism and feminism, which really, by all virtue, are totally two different kind of set of Para parameters mm -hmm. of thinking and even in terms of uh, uh, the, the, the ideal, I mean, ideas behind it, you know. So, but there are two, John, you get your <laughs> mic, but <laughs> there are two other people here. Yes, Madam. Um, I have a question with regards to the subject's agency when it comes to us, the consumer and how that uh, might be changed or altered when it's consumed in the gallery space curated in that conversation, and how that might be different in the commercial space like where we're sitting now. Well, we are not sitting in a commercial <laughs> space. 
We are sitting in an auditorium, which is not with the commercial space upstairs. Well, it's I guess what, I mean, my, my question back to you is, what inference would you draw from yeah. that distinction then? What's, what's your uh, uncertainty, concern? Elaborate a bit more for me. Well, it, it's drawing on the quote that you said earlier, which is, being a black man means being subject to a white gaze. And a lot of what you're talking about in terms of um, the agency, the power, the class structures, um, especially in Britain, um, in, in a culture that reproduces that in our own space daily. Um, the curation, as you've presented it, allows a kind of context, a kind of conversation, a kind of historical legacy for us to consume it through that lens. And I wonder how that's maybe different than just seeing the image through a particular gaze and purchasing that. Yeah. Well, it's a good question, complicated question. I mean, I think, I, I guess, look, I guess, yeah, the virtue for me was, was, was trying to bring a set of different works together in one space rather than have those as individuated moments. So yes, the distinction is that, I, I, I'd say the, dis the, the distinction is all about context in as much as I think by collecting together sets of work from different photographers, I was able to make a set of overarching points which is that there's a connection between these and that connection is uh, both aesthetic and also if you want uh, political to some extent. That's obviously impossible to do once you um, separate out those images. But I guess, you know, in a way, like a lot of them are commercial images in the first place. Anyway, you know, the city based stuff was shot as commercial mm -hmm. images. Um, 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 the Christine Lee Moorman stuff was shot as commercial images. This is, you know, shot for editorial. So actually, like, a lot of the photographers aren't fine art photographers to begin with. There's something happens when you start to put them together and they start to talk to each other. But I think one of the things I was interested about them in the first place was that they are able to use the fact that they worked commercially as photographers still to create uh, moments of art, still to create moments of deep empathy with their subjects, still to give those subjects the kind of respect and honour that allows them to be seen, hopefully on, in a range of different circumstances, as... Um, living individuals rather than um, you know just something to look at so they're obviously going to work better in a space where they're framed but actually I think the reason I was attracted to at least some of these images in the first place was because I felt they spoke to me anyway on their own terms okay we'll take Maybe just one last intervention, please. Just, one. just, just. I think, I think, <laughs> I think, I think. What we would, what we could, what might be helpful, he I think, might be to, might be to think of um, masculinities having no gender, right? To think of what we didn't get that. It I might be useful to think of masculinities without having gender, yeah, with no gender. Masculinities have no gender, yeah. yeah? If it might be useful to think it that way, mm -hmm. because then you're able to see the possibilities that are opened up by querying the black male body. Yes, That is the way in which the conversation or the engagement with feminism emerges, mm. which is not the same thing 
as simply situating is outside a conversation about, about dandism. And I think what's very interesting about the show is that you could see in that work the feminization of the black male body. Okay? Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, not all of it. I mean, well, no. I, guess, see, I would say, I would say, rather than again, no. rather than going to a thing where we say, and I don't disagree with you, George, but rather than going to a thing where we say we see the feminization of the male body, so yes, but I'm actually the thing that I felt for me came across was actually where we see the fluidity of gender oh. positions. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's mm -hmm. that's the real thing. So again, mm -hmm. the Christine Lee Woman working there, we actually had, you know, don't say it in the show, but. The, the sort of reading room for the show, I had a series of images um, from Dazed and Confused magazine shot by a photographer called Harley Ware. It was a kind of series. And there were photos of, of Young Thug, the kind of um, rapper. You know, Young Thug is an interesting artist. He's kind of very street and so on, but he also tends to cross-dress in his photos. Mm -hmm. And he's an interesting figure to me because, you know, five years ago, two years ago, ten years ago in hip-hop, you know, he'd have been, you know, burned alive or something like that. But actually, you know, one of the things we're seeing much more is a you know is m more mainstream explorations of fluid identity, and I think so. Yes, that is one of the layers of the show, because it's one of the layers actually of society. It's one of the things that's happening right now. Uh, we can see that in a number of different ways, and I think it's you know I think, but what, so as a consequence, what's interesting to me is that actually once you start to put together some of these images, you start to see historical intestines for that. You know, again, with that first image, I started from the young man in plaid. Like I said, could have been from the 70s, happens to be from the 90s. But, you know, all sorts of things. So, yes, you're right in that respect. The truth is, this has always been the case. The truth is, men have always had a fluid, open identity. Men are just the last people to acknowledge that for themselves. Men are the people who, you know. But, you know, that's the, the secret truth is, you know, we make it up, you know. Lots of men have an idea that the only way to be is one, you know, mm -hmm. is one form of things. Mm -hmm. But actually, really interesting, when you put them in a studio, <coughs> when you put them in front of a camera, they start to perform. Exactly. <laughs> they start to become what it, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, camp, louche, open, romantic, all sorts of things. They start to acknowledge that actually they're actors. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, that, you know, yes, that's a... It's one of the things at the very heart of the show. Mm -hmm. One of the things, that actually for me, that's most liberating mm -hmm. about all of this. Well, I think we will end here because we have to prepare for the next session. And uh, really, um, thank you very much, Echo. Really, you. thank you. It was enlightening and uh, with lots of beautiful sentences and ideas. Uh, please join us for the second talk, which is uh, at three. And uh, it's, uh, it's a talk uh, between uh, artists uh, Serge uh, Clote and moderated by Naina Oforiata Aim. They will talk about material sculpture, about, you know, the work of Serge that really in between design, sculpture, and, uh, and painting um, at two, at three. Thank you very much.